reviewing the scientific literature to answer your questions about gender diversity, this is Classroom Psychology. And now here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello everybody and welcome to Classroom Psychology. I'm your host Cora. It is so very wonderful to see you. Hop on in here. Let's talk about gender diversity. Pour yourself a drink. I, I've got a decaf coffee. I've gone decaf you guys, uh, which you probably can't hear in the energy. Maybe that's why I need to go decaf because Cora on coffee is not something that you, anybody needs in their life. It's wonderful to see you. And this week, much like we do every time, we come together, we take a question or comment, often from a public figure or politician or sometimes a famous book author, and we take it for the question that we know their confident statements were intended to be, and we look to the literature to see if we can't together find something of an answer. Now, today's question comes from hey, uh, the legendary Michael Knowles. Michael Knowles is a political commentator, um, a, a media host, a presenter, um, and uh, I think has worked for the Daily Wire for uh, several years now. Um, and Michael Knowles uh, has taken to commenting on gender uh, diversity uh, most recently. Uh, and some of the things he has to say are pretty bold. So, hey, we'll take his bold statements for the questions we know it was intended to be. Uh, so here we have Michael Knowles. Mickey Mouse has to become a Nazi. He has to. Because Disney is a very, very evil corporation that wants to trans your kids and fill their heads with all sorts of crazy ideas. And Disney's, Disney's got to go. Disney's got to go, guys. Thanks so much to Michael Knowles for such an interesting question posed, as they often are in the form of confident declaration that Mickey Mouse should become a Nazi. Uh, <laughs> but we'll take it for the question we know it was intended to be, and we'll see if we can't find an answer together. So, should Mickey Mouse become a Nazi? Uh, hey, <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about media representation. So, I think the question here is about. Uh, is, is Disney transing your kids? Uh, is media representation a bad thing? Uh, is it like problematic? Can it uh, cause people to become confused? Or is this much more about representation? What are the effects of representation? Could like the move from lots of companies in like social media, in uh, like public media, in like, popular media, and in kind of... Um, like video game media, for example, are companies trying to be more representative, trying to represent more sophisticated trans and gender diverse stories, and who are trying to kind of maybe represent trans characters more, uh, more broadly and and in greater depth, and you know more three D complex characters. What are the effects of this improved representation, increased representation? Um, now, before we get started, we need to talk a little bit about Clark's work. Now, in 1969, Clark outlined four stages of minor minority representation in media. And it's actually really interesting to kind of go through these because when we take a look at the representation that the gender diverse communities have had in popular media, we can see that we are moving quite nicely through these stages and have been for the last 40 years or so. So in the first stage of Clark's model, we have non-recognition. Now, basically, in this stage, minority the minority groups uh, that we're focused on, gender diverse populations, largely invisible in the media, not represented, not focused on. Uh, and if they do get represented, they get represented in extremely insignificant ways, like uh, you know, uh, it, whatever it might be, a, a dead body in, in CSI or something like that, right? Something extremely marginal and minor, not really represented in any way. Now, stage two, as, you know, representation improves, I mean, I don't know if this is an improvement really, but stage two, along a four-stage process, is ridicule. When minority groups of interest, this minority group, you know, transgender folk and, and gender diverse folk appear in media during this stage, they are the subject of mockery, stereotypes, ridicule. They are the butt 
of the joke. And you can hear this here, uh, you know, from the 1980s. We have Crocodile Dundee. That was a guy. Guy dressed up like a sheila. Look at that. There you are, you. And from the 1990s, we have Ace Ventura. Einhorn is Finkel. Finkel is Einhorn. Einhorn is a man. Oh my God. Einhorn is a man. Now, clearly, you know, both massive, uh, massive films of their time, like huge films of their times, and both, you know, showing some kind of representation, I guess, but extremely kind of uh, extremely stereotypical and making transgender folk the subject of mockery is that's their function in the in the films or slightly kind of evolved from that as you see in ace ventura also the villain of the story is transgender in this case um and that is also included in the ridicule stage of clark you go from ridicule uh, comic relief and villains up to we get to stage three regulation now here minority characters get portrayed in roles uh, in shows but they are kind of positioned as sort of um they reinforce the norms and rules of majority culture rather than exhibiting the norms and rules of their own minority culture right and um, so when we're talking about gender diverse folk we might have slightly better representation they're telling trans stories a bit more honorably but the norms that we see mostly upheld are things like transgender people as sex workers a perception that we often get or the victims of crime or as you know transgender women as men right so we have things like the danish girl 2015 there was a moment when I wasn't me. There was a moment when I was just... Lily. But Lily doesn't exist. We were playing a game. Something changed. And Transparent, or Transparent, I can don't even know how you pronounce that, Jeffrey Tambor in Transparent in 2016. Help me out here. Are you, are you saying that you're going to start dressing up like a lady all the time? <laughs> no, honey, all my life. My whole life, I've been dressing up like a man. This is me. And those are kind of reinforcing the sort of cultural majority norms, right? Seeing transgender women as men because they are played by men. Now, of course, trans guys are basically still excluded. Like, we very rarely get to see trans guys in popular media um, at all, really, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, and something that's worth us bearing in mind. A real poor representation still of transgender dudes in, in our popular media. Now, it sets the stage uh, for kind of evolved narratives in the regulation phase. And you start to get towards slightly more evolved uh like representations where characters that are, are kind of included, their stories are become a bit more evolved, but they're still included because they're transgender, right? Their, their being transgender is a, such a fundamental part of their uh, role and identity that it becomes sort of a big part of their character. Uh, and so we have, for example, Orange is the New Black from 2013 to 2019. I don't need your pity. Good. Because I ain't got none to give. And then it kind of gets a bit more evolved. I mean, I still think that's almost, I think that's the start of the respect phase, Orange is the New Black, right? Um, Laverne Cox, absolutely amazing. Um, uh, I was on the cover of Time magazine, uh, a freaking force of nature, uh, huge things that she did for uh, the gender diverse community in terms of representation. Now, the fourth stage in Clark's model is respect. Now, this final stage is characterized by a more nuanced and respectful portrayal of minority characters. It is, it's, it features like marginalized trans folk as like full, complete, rich, three-dimensional characters with their own stories and narratives where we tell our own stories like they're our stories our culture our you know 
they're the truth of our existence and it's more richly presented. So we have the amazing Hunter Schaefer in Euphoria. Some new girl in town that I think you're going to be friends with. I'm real. I'm Jules. That was in 2019. And then but still a character for whom tra being trans is a big part of their character still. To, again, Hunter Schaefer, because I'm just an incredible fan, huge fan of uh, Hunter Schaefer's work. To Ballad of Songbird and Snakes, where Hunter Schaefer is playing just a character, a woman in the world. Absolutely amazing. And really, that's like the height of trans representation, right? A transgender woman playing just a female character on screen. Absolutely amazing. And what a change, right? What a move, how far we have come in just like what, eight years from the Danish girl in 2015, right? 2015, the Danish girl, we have a man, a male actor playing a transgender woman to Transparent, to Orange is the New Black, transgender women first representing themselves on screen to euphoria to ballad songbirds and snakes to finally transgender women getting roles as women on screen absolutely beautiful um i find that wonderful but the question here is still really reasonable what are the effects of this representation is this a good thing what could the effects be now in order to understand the effects, we kind of need to go to two places. The first is, before we get into the research, we'll get into the research. You know me, we'll get into the research. Uh, the first is the intergroup contact hypothesis. And this is Allport's work from 1954. Now, Allport argued fundamentally that under sort of ideal conditions, like if you have equal status, common goals, intergroup cooperation, and support from authorities, uh, you... In those circumstances, if you have greater contact with people from a marginalized population, then you develop a, like, and particularly if that contact is associated with positive emotions, then you will develop a kind of more positive uh, perspective of that person. You know, there's a participant in one of the pieces of research, we'll talk about McEnroy's um uh, study, uh, participants said, it's easy to hate people when you've never seen them. That's essentially the, the, like the inverse of the contact hypothesis made manifest, right? Contact hypothesis says, uh, the more that you have contact with a person uh, from marginalized populations, people from marginalized populations, particularly uh, under ideal conditions where you have kind of equal status and common goals, and particularly where you are engaged in positive uh, it, like affective context. So uh, where you are engaged in contact with somebody and feel positive about that contact, uh, you will like have better perspectives towards that group, like your attitude toward that group will improve. Um, now, that's obviously quite tricky for the trans population generally, because many of us are hidden. Um, we stay hidden. We're often like like, there aren't many of us to begin with, right? It's only 0.5 of the population, 0.5% of the population. Uh, we often remain hidden. Lots of people are stealth in the world, even if they're out. Like, even if they have transitioned, many remain secret uh, in order to stay safe. So the, the intergroup contact hypothesis is hard to apply in practical terms with the trans community because, you know, people don't know us often and they don't, even if they do meet us, they don't always know that we were trans, right? Um, which is something. But there may be an opportunity, like that's kind of the perfect storm for parasocial relationships to play a key role. Because if, for example, like I meet loads of people and I talk to them about trans stuff, a lot of the time I will talk to people about the trans community and sometimes they'll say, oh, you're the first trans person I've met. And it's like, no, I'm probably not. But the reason you think that is because you don't know that you've met a trans person before, right? You didn't know that they were trans, either because they hadn't come out yet or because they had come out but were staying secret to stay safe. And in that context, then, parasocial relationships become a means by which we might improve attitudes. So uh, Kanazawa in 2002 uh, made this interesting proposition, basically, proposed that the function of kind of media, I mean, that's the function of any media, really. People do it because they empathize with or want to empathize with, live vicariously through characters that they observe, right? Now, Kanazawa said, listen, if 
if you are observing a character in, in TV or film or in video games or, or even observing people on new media like social media or, you know, on TikTok or YouTube, if you are observing people that you don't necessarily know, right, you don't know any of those people intimately, uh, or at least they don't know you intimately, but as you get to know them more intimately through their on-screen time, in some cases you might start to feel quite like a strong empathic experience with that character, right? You might feel like relatively strong feelings of intimacy and, and affection toward the character. That's that's a beautiful thing, right? Books and TV and film are all opportunities to feel that sort of sense of affection towards and empathy for and and uh, and sort of identification with the key characters on screen. Now, Kanazawa says that if those attitudes, like if if your sense of connection with the character, you can empathize with, identify with a character from a marginalized population, that may very well serve the same function as intergroup contact, right? Through what Kanazawa called parasocial relationships, parasocial contact, where the relationship is really only one way. Like the character doesn't get to know you at all, but you feel a strong sense of empathy and identification with an intimacy and affection toward a particular character on screen. So uh, Kanazawa's uh, approach here, Kanazawa's prediction, I guess, is that if you watch characters in media uh, and feel affection towards them and they represent marginalized communities in a sort of full three-dimensional way, then it might improve attitudes in the same way as can uh, as predicted by the intergroup contact hypothesis, right? So potential, right here, there is the potential, particularly for the trans community because of their hidden nature, that proper sound good 3D representations in media, good representation, like offers the opportunity for uh, parasocial relationships and therefore the intergroup like, contact hypothesis to, to matter. So we could improve attitudes towards this community through media in a way that might be impossible in other ways because of their hidden nature. Now, sure, in 2014, uh, on page 215, made this statement. Beautiful quote. Media representations are possible realities made material. Characters who are members of marginalized groups cannot be treated simply as lessons to outgroup members or examples to in-group members. Their existence in media texts allows for more ways of being in the world for all audiences. That's a great quote. I really like that a lot. So the first thing to say, I guess, is <clears throat> the first thing to ask is how does representation, how is representation experienced by the trans community? Because while it might look, you know, as we're looking at Clark's kind of four stages of minority representation, it's still a bit of a blunt instrument to talk about something quite nuanced. So we need to reach to McEnroy and Craig 2015, trans transgender representation in online and offline media. Uh, LGBTQ youth perspectives from the Journal of Human Behavior in the Social Environment. This is a cool piece of research. It is undertaken in Toronto, Canada, um, uh, a, a city that the authors consider has a, quite a significant LGBTQ community, which is kind of cool. And they conducted 19 interviews with LGBTQ identified young adults. Um, they were between the ages of 18 and 22. They were all LGBTQ folk uh, and they needed to be avid consumers of both online and offline media. Uh, and they had to have had some experience of seeing representation of transgender people in media. Um, What's super interesting here, the, the author state that the interviews were several hours in length, and I don't know, I'm trying to work out, I assume they don't mean each interview was several hours in length. It reads like that's what they mean, but I mean, I love film and TV, but damn, I don't think I could, I could tolerate talking about it for several hours at a time. Uh, that's something. So most of the participants were... Um, cisgender folk, so not transgender folk, uh, like 47% cisgender women, 31% cisgender men, 15% uh, trans guys, 5% uh, genderqueer, 73% uh, white, 5.3% uh, Asian, 5.3% black, and 15.8% multiracial. Um, 
Now, these participants were, um, I think on the whole, they basically were saying that transphobia was pretty rampant um, and that they're still seeing even now, I mean, it was 2015, so it was a few years ago, long before uh, Euphoria, for example, um, which I love watching it again right now. I just can't get enough of it. Um, it's uh, like they're still seeing few authentic representations of transgender people uh, and still quite a lot of stereotypical uh, portrayals. Participants also uh, said that transgender guys in particular were very underrepresented when tra when compared to transgender girls who were much more visible, but highly stereotyped when they were uh, presented uh, from one participant. I think transphobia is a much bigger problem in mainstream media or any media than homophobia. I think most people would say, regardless of how they actually feel about LGBTQ people, they would probably say that homophobia is not acceptable, or at least we shouldn't be open about it. But people are often very open about being transphobic, and it's terrible. That's from Emma, a cisgender young woman, 22 years of age, uh, queer, stroke bisexual. Another quote here. When trans people are represented in the media, it's represented as a joke or a funny little aside. Trans people are hardly represented, which I think is an issue. It's easy to hate people when you've never seen them. It's very easy to make fun of trans people when there's no trans person sitting in front of you. There's no human being that you're making fun of. There's only some sort of fictional idea of someone that you're joking about. Andy, a cisgender young man, queer stroke gay, 21 years of age. Um, really interesting to me. Uh, I guess it, I guess it's not super surprising, uh, particularly as we hit 2015. I mean, things have changed very rapidly between 2013 and 2024, right? Like we've seen some pretty dramatic changes and uh, 2015 is still pretty early days compared to where we are now, but it's still kind of interesting. Um, last interesting thing from these participants is they were particularly uh, keen on the idea of kind of... Um, social media representation like youtube tiktok for example um although i don't know if tiktok was around in 2015 uh but you know they're, they're talking about kind of online media uh being better than sort of more typical traditional forms of media uh for representation uh seeing that positive role models for transgender youth are exceptionally rare in mainstream media yet transgender participants can still access role models online where they cannot offline and speaking of online media, uh, Kozcheska in 2023 talks about the moral service of trans NPCs, examining the roles of transgender non-player characters in role-playing video games in Games and Culture, a journal of interactive media. Um, and uh, Kozcheska was talking really about like, looking at the representation of LGBTQ folk in video games and in NPCs. They focus on a couple of really key ones, which are really interesting. Uh, focus on Krem in Bioware's 2024, 2014 uh, Dragon Age Inquisition title. I can't believe Dragon Age Inquisition came out in 2014. That's like 10 years ago. Where's Dragon Age now? Please, more Dragon Age. I know there's one in the works. <laughs> I play a lot of video games. <laughs> Miranda Komei Miranda Komei in 2016's Watch Dogs 2 and uh, Lev in Naughty Dogs 2020 The Last of Us Part 2. Um, those are kind of three examples. There really aren't very many examples even today of kind of trans representation in video games. Uh, but they talk about like there are good representations even in uh, some big budget mainstream games, but they're still often relegated to non-player characters' roles, with the exception of Don't Nod's Entertainment, Don't Nod Entertainment's 2020 title, Tell Me Why, uh, which features a trans protagonist. Now, full disclosure, I started to tell me why, but I didn't finish it. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Don't nod entertainment. It was amazing. Uh, great game. I really enjoyed playing it for the time that I did. Uh, and I, I, I absolutely adored seeing a trans character. And what was amazing, of course, is that... Uh, this is like one of the only really positive and well-developed representations of a trans guy in new media, right? Like, uh, there was a great representation of Tyler, who's a trans dude in Tell Me Why. I absolutely loved playing this game, uh, although I didn't finish it, so sorry. So, 
even in video games, we're still seeing the same kind of problem. There just aren't that many representations and where there are, they're often relegated to these non-player character roles. Rarely are they the protagonists of stories in, in even in video game media. So now another one from McEnroy and Craig in 2017. Um, God love McEnroy in this field. Uh, it's a great little niche field to be uh, so well known in, I guess. Um, perspectives of LGBTQ emerging adults on the depiction and impact of LGBTQ media representation in the Journal of Youth Studies. So McEnroy interviewed 19 uh, young emerging adults, 18 to 22. Um, and again, these participants talk about the distinction between kind of more traditional forms of media, popular media and uh, like social media. Um, and they talk about the stories that they see in both. Their queerness is the primary focus and their struggles as a queer person and the challenges they face. It's as if that's all their queerness is. It's a constant daily struggle. On Glee, Kurt's story is constantly just about him being bullied in school. In all the queer media I've seen representing youth, that's how it's shown. They have it so hard. Their lives are so shitty. It must suck to be them. Joey, 21, gay male. The traditional coming out story, gay white boy comes out to the parents after he thinks he likes a boy. They go, oh no, it's just a phase. He goes through some struggles and eventually some of his friends leave him. Some of his friends support him, but eventually his parents go, okay, I accept you. You're my son after all. But you never hear the story of the trans kid such as me who was told that it's all in my head. You never hear the story of the kid whose parents tried to kill themselves. You never hear the story of the parents who are immigrants and who have trouble reconciling their cultural differences. We never see that because these are complicated stories. These are stories that are so hard to believe, they're stories we don't want to accept as true, but they do exist. That's Denny, 18, uh, a gay young transgender person. It doesn't feel good when you see yourself on the TV painted with these broad strokes of what it means to be this thing or this type of person. Yeah, that can be a little, oh, is that all there is for me? When I grow up, I'm going to be a hairdresser. Is that it? Or is that what I'm expected to be? You don't see a lot of gay scientists. That's Joey, 21 year old uh, gay guy. A lot of new social media is dominated by queer youth because they're the ones who are contributing, moderating, things like that. So yeah, it's really a departure from traditional media, which is dominated by adults who are doing it for the money. Whereas online, there's not a lot of money to be made unless you're a superstar. So the people who are doing it are doing it because they want to be, and they feel like they have something to contribute, or even just finding an online community to be part of can be really liber liberating from personal experience. That's Joey, 21-year-old uh, gay guy. Now, this challenge, the challenge that we sort of face here um, for our strong media representation is particularly acute for people at the intersection of multiple marginalized identities. Aubrey 2023, promoting healthy identity development and mitigating minority stress among black and African-American transgender and gender expansive young people using children's literature. Uh, this is a dissertation rather than a published paper, uh, but really interesting, a sort of review of how multicultural children's literature has evolved um, and is kind of exposing children to diverse identities. Uh, but ultimately, it kind of lands on the idea that there really isn't very good representation. Like these, these marginalized identities, particularly people at multiple marginalized identity intersections, are deeply, deeply underrepresented in children's literature. Um, and it's uh, that's deeply problematic for a bunch of different reasons. Um, the author goes on to kind of talk about more diversity being needed um, in in children's literature in order to kind of, I guess that probably uh, extrapolates to children's TV programming and extrapolates to probably adult TV and film and media programming, right? Like there's almost no, I would say, uh, experiences at that kind of, at, at uh, important intersections uh, of multiple marginalized identities. When we're talking about trans characters, we really just, you know, it's about their transness. It's, it's rarely a sort of evolved character and much less likely to talk about the kind of uh, the experience at a particular intersection of multiple marginalized identities. Um, we need more of it. 
So, so far, we've kind of described how media representation isn't ideal, right? People's perceptions of the representation in media that they see, like video games and TV and film and, and, and social media, etc. Now, but the real question here is about kind of how does media representation affect people, right? Uh, and particularly, I you know, I see quite a bit of research looking at how media representation affects attitudes towards gender diverse populations. So we'll start with Hofarth and Hodgson, 2018, when intergroup contact is uncommon and bias is strong, the case for anti-transgender bias, psychology and sexuality. So these authors were interested in this question, right? How do uh, representation in in public media, in popular media, how does that representation influence attitudes? Now, there's some weaknesses in this research, which we'll get to, but they brought together 277 participants, 35 years of age on average, and um, uh, roughly half female and 85% white. Um, they brought them together from Amazon's MTurk, uh, which is, I think, it's, it's the, we've seen it before. It's the uh, online recruitment tool. We don't use it too much in the UK, I don't think. Uh, but in the US, it's fairly frequently used for participant recruitment, which is kind of interesting. Um, and they took a look at the relationship between uh, like the watching of three popular television shows with prominent transgender characters and their kind of attitudes towards the transgender community and their, uh, like, what they describe as uh, anti-transgender discrimination intentions, right? So they measured a bunch of stuff and they controlled to things like right-wing authoritarianism um, and contact transgender contact frequency and quality in their personal lives. Now, they found that people who watched uh, these three television shows more frequently, Orange is the New Black, Transparent and I Am Kate, which I've got to say, you know, Transparent and I Am Kate, neither of which are particularly good representations of transgender folks. Um, and people rated them. They basically said, I, I never watch it to five. I'm a regular viewer. Um, and they answered another item about how often they see transgender characters on TV in general. Um, and they basically found that there was a kind of connection between these and attitudes. So they found that transgender media contact was associated with lower transphobia and higher transgender attitudes, like warmer transgender attitudes um, they even called it a transgender attitude thermometer so literally warmer um, but these weren't huge effect sizes um, sort of small to medium effect sizes and obviously this is correlational and that's probably the greatest weakness here is a sort of naturalistic study where they're you know they're not trying to force people to, <laughs> trying to force people to watch something they wouldn't have already seen um, but of course, people with warmer attitudes are probably going to be more likely to watch those shows. So you've got a slightly problematic difficulty, which is classic with correlational research about uh, uh, like directionality. It's very difficult to know whether the directionality is bilateral or in which direction the causation lies. Right. So it's a bit tricky, but we have some different research to draw on. Gillig, Rosenhall, Murphy and Falb in 2018. More than a media moment. I love a good bit of alliteration. It reminds me of B. More than a media moment, the influence of televised storylines on viewers' attitudes towards transgender people and policies uh, in sex roles, a journal of research. So these guys really attended to this problem. They brought together nearly 500 participants. The vast majority, 90% were cisgender women, uh, like 93% were uh, straight uh, and uh, there were no transgender participants, uh, and 84% of the participants were white, um, and they had uh, like 5% Hispanic Latino participants, 3.9% Asian, 3.9% uh, mixed or multicultural, and 1.8% black, and 0.8% uh, other. 18 to 81 uh, eight years of age, uh, average age 43.4. So a sort of you know, mature audience in the middle ages. Um, and basically they were looking at the kind of, uh, they were trying to get people who viewed Royal Pains. Uh, I'd, I've never seen Royal Pains, Royal Pains as a series. Um, and there was a single episode aired on June 23rd, 2015, uh, which featured a transgender storyline, which I think is really interesting. So they were interested in the people who watched Royal Pains who didn't see this episode yet and those who have seen this episode. And they wondered about the difference between those participants. 
I don't know much about this example of representation. I have not seen this episode of Royal Pains. Um, but by the sounds of things, it's got a transgender actor playing a transgender woman, which sounds like young woman, which sounds like a reasonable thing. Uh, don't know much more about whether it's a good representation or not. Um, but they did find that participants who saw the episode reported more positive attitudes toward transgender people than those who had not. And they found that the exposure to other transgender narratives in this sample was also significant. So people who uh, experienced more narratives of the transgender community in media, the more positive their attitudes towards transgender people were. Now it gets even a little more interesting here. They not only asked participants about their attitudes, they were particularly interested in participants' attitudes towards transgender policy issues. So they were interested in, you know, how do people's in, like interpretation of transgender relevant policies uh, are affected by watching this storyline. And again, they found that Participants who had viewed the episode reported more positive attitudes towards transgender policy issues than those who did not. And again, like the exposure to other transgender narratives also uh, seemed to have a positive uh, relationship with more positive attitudes towards transgender policy issues. And these guys did some further testing and identified that uh, ultimately, what seems to be happening is that participants are identifying with Anna and that identification is predicting more positive attitudes towards transgender people and more positive attitudes towards transgender relevant policy. So what we find here is that identification with this character, again, perhaps kind of linking to parasocial theory, perhaps linking to the intergroup uh, contact hypothesis that that connects to is showing that, you know, showing positive representations of transgender folks and stories on TV does allow people to identify with the character and feel like affection toward that character, feel positive toward them. And therefore that attitude then bleeds over to feeling more positive about gender diverse communities more broadly. Now, this does come with a bit of a dark side. Now, Solomon and Kurtz Costes and 2018, media's influence on perceptions of trans women, sexuality research and social policy, a journal of the NSRC. Now, they brought together a very similar sample to our original study there, 358 US participants through the MTurk website. Their final sample had 274 people in it, 161 transgender women, uh, cisgender women, sorry, and 113 cisgender men, ages ranging from 19 to 83, average age of 36, with 80% of the participants uh, between the ages of 19 and 45. So a reasonably young sample. Um, 214 participants identified as white, so that's 78% white, 8% uh, Black or African American, 4.4% uh, Asian or Asian American, 4.4% of mixed race, 3.3% as other, and 1.5% as uh, Native American. Uh, and 18 participants at 6.6% identified as Hispanic. Now, this was a really interesting piece of work. Now, what we found so far, of course, is that, you know, these kind of these naturalistic studies where people get into long-term uh, transgender storylines do seem to be related to positive attitudes. When people are invested in a TV show and they have a full episode about transgender storylines and are able to identify with the character, that can have positive effects. These guys did a very like discrete experimental study showing people one of three video clips. The first is from 2003 episode of Grey's Anatomy, where the boys are, which starred trans actress Alexandra Billings as a patient preparing for sexual reassignment surgery, in inverted commas, gender confirmation surgery. So that's the positive representation clip. That's clip A. Clip B came from a 2012 CSI crime scene investigation episode, Strip Mall, where a cisgender male guest actor, Andrew Elvis Miller, portrayed a uh, trans woman who believes she's about to have a baby. And uh, control clip C, the control clip was a random episode of a CSI that didn't have any trans representation in it at all. Now, what was interesting here, they then did another experiment. And we'll take a look at all of these together because they basically found the same thing with the second experiment. With the second experiment, they had an extra clip D, which came from 
Dallas Buyers Club, which is considered problematic, right? They had the problematic clip, which isn't positive or negative. It's just problematic where Jared Leto plays a trans woman, a trans woman who greets and plays a game of cards with a new hospital roommate. Um, and the other problematic clip they used was from Soldier's Girl, in which another cis male actor, Lee Pace, plays a trans exotic dancer. Now, so these are sort of problematic representations of trans women played by uh, cisgender men. Now, this is really interesting. They took a look at the question, you know, does the condition, does the kind of clip that people saw change their attitudes? Uh, do people have different attitudes depending, given they were randomly assigned, do people have different attitudes depending on which of these clips they saw? It's just one-off clips, very small, right? It's like tiny intervention, just one or two clips. That's all they saw. And then they carry on with their day, right? And they do a, they do a questionnaire and carry on, right? That's all. It's not really enough time to invest in or identify with a particular character. So they found that the effect sizes were quite small. But what they found was that in these kind of short, very clipped little segments, participants didn't experience any positive effects from the positive uh, representations, right? Instead, they found like negative effects from the negative uh, like clips. They found relatively small effect sizes, but they didn't find any positive effects from positive clips. They only found that people's attitudes were kind of deteriorated by the negative clips, even if they were quite short clips. So this is really important, right? Because if you think about the media, like the news in particular, people very frequently get, particularly in the UK, very frequently get quite negative representations of transgender people in the news in clipped uh, like clipped segments, right? And particularly on social media too, these clipped short segments, maybe tiny little representations, not enough time to invest in any kind of, invest in anyone or to identify with anyone, but just these tiny little segments. And it turns out that might be enough to have these small negative effects on attitudes. Do these effects compound over time? No idea. Um, but it is enough. A short clip is enough to have a bad effect on people's attitudes if the clip is negative or problematic, but it doesn't have enough uh, effect it can't have a positive effect on people's attitudes necessarily if it is a positive representation, but that positive representation is short and clipped. Super, super interesting to me. Now, we've got to bear in mind that these studies, you know, there aren't that many of them. There's no systematic reviews in this field. And these are still, they're pretty, you know, when we're getting into the, into the sort of nuance of the research here, um, around a very specific question, it's quite difficult to say, you know, do does media representation, what does it do to people's attitudes? Uh, I think we can say that media representation does seem to affect attitudes and broadly positively by the looks of things. Um, and it looks like, uh, atti and, and it kind of fits with the theory, right? It kind of fits with uh, the theory of intergroup contact and of parasocial relationships. It sort of fits that if we have characters who are good representations, who have relatively kind of their positive representations, they're non-problematic, they're trans people representing trans stories that aren't reinforcing the kind of uh, reinforcing the majority norms and rules. They're telling our own stories and our own rules and norms and culture. And um, then that's a positive thing. And it seems that from the research that people who can identify with and feel kind of some kind of parasocial relationship with uh, LGBT people in the world have more positive attitudes. Their attitudes are influenced by that representation. Um, and even just one-off episodes seem to be able to have that effect, although really tiny uh, representations that aren't super positive can also have a bit of a negative effect. So it seems like, yeah, I think we can probably say that, yeah, uh, representation is a good thing when it comes to attitudes. Now, here's a question. Though representation is a good thing for attitudes, is it also a good thing for sales, right? Does it change whether people will go and see your film, <laughs> right? That's uh, a good question. And amazingly, Chung Jo and Yo in 2022 uh, 
conducted a study they called LGBT inclusive representation in entertainment products and its market response, evidence from field and lab in the Journal of Business Ethics. These authors brought together all the films they could find between uh, where they could get the sort of US market box office, essentially, from for all films released between 2007 and 2014. And they got their box office revenue, their total revenue, uh, and had that as their dependent variable in the research. They brought together 4,216 films. Now, I don't think they watched all the movies, which would have been one hell of a, uh, of a, of a methodological feature. Right? I watched over 4,000 movies for my thesis. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Uh, they didn't. They looked at keywords largely and they separated out uh, studies that had no, they weren't LGBT movies from those that were LGBT themed, i.e. whether they had LGBT themed representation or whether they were LGBT inclusive, whether they had some kind of inclusive representation. Now, the difference between those two things might not be immediately apparent. Uh, LGBT, uh, it turns out that they actually did. They hired a bunch of research assistants to look, to scour the kind of movie details. If they couldn't get the information they needed, they actually went to the kind of uh, to the movie like summaries online. And if they couldn't get the information they needed from that, they watched the trailer, which I absolutely love. So they got the LGBT themed movies as any movie that had an LGBT lead and that featured an LGBT storyline that was core to the movie. And um, anything, any kind of LGBT inclusive movie was uh, any movie that had kind of key LGBT characters, but that where the LGBT storyline wasn't something that anchored the movie. It wasn't a key feature of the movie. Um, so we had LGBT themed, fully, fully inclusive and, and LGBT centered, LGBT storyline, LGBT lead, LGBT inclusive, which had LGBT characters, but doesn't uh, feature an LGBT story at the heart of the film and non-LGBT, non-LGBT movies that had nothing to do with the LGBT community. Which of these did best in the box office, right? Which kind of film did best? Well, based on all eligible movies in the US market over a period of eight years, movies with LGBT inclusive representation perform best in terms of box office revenue. How amazing. Now, these researchers actually went one step further. They brought together 240 participants from NTurk Classic. They brought them together to have a look at these three kinds of movies, non-LGBT, LGBT inclusive, and LGBT themed. Now they split these participants into two groups. Uh, they Obviously they didn't know which group they were in. They either had, they were in the group of less favorable LGBT attitudes or more favorable LGBT attitudes. And then they split all of these participants to basically reading plot descriptions of three different films, either a non-LGBT film, an LGBT inclusive film, or an LGBT themed film. And they asked them to uh, describe their intention on a scale to watch that movie, right? Having read that plot synopsis, basically. And then they asked them another question about their willingness to pay to watch a movie on uh, based on the movie like description they had just read and what did they find well they find that when it's an lgbt themed film it tends to have a sort of negative impact on the intention to watch and the willingness to pay for people with a less favorable lgbt attitude uh, you know, people with a more favorable lgbt attitude actually had a more like a greater desire to go and watch that film if they had if it was lgbt themed if it's non-LGBT themed, then participants with less favorable LGBT attitudes had a sort of stronger willingness to go see it. And participants with a more favorable attitude towards LGBT uh, folk had a less strong desire to go see it. But when it was LGBT inclusive, that had a pretty strong, like, like, both participants with less favorable and with more favorable LGBT attitudes were keen to go and see that film. So LGBT inclusive films represented the best opportunity to get more people to see films. Not only did they have positive attitudes towards those films, but they had a greater willingness to pay to go and see them. 
not only in terms of this research asking about people's attitudes, but in terms of box office revenue, the films that were doing better were LGBT inclusive films, films with better LGBT representation. So in response to this question from Michael Knowles, you know, Hey, I don't think uh, I don't think we need Mickey Mouse to become a Nazi. Um, I, I don't think that LGBT representation is anything we need to be worried about here. I couldn't find. I mean, I was looking for every piece of research I could find about representation. And there's only one that we didn't have time to cover. Um, that's from Diaz and colleagues about uh, LGBT media exposure in in uh, Brazil. Um, I couldn't get enough information from the study to be able to to comment on it properly, so we didn't include it. But I, I couldn't find anything to to claim that LGBT, like no theory, no research that would consider that LGBT representation is more likely to make kids confused in any way, right? I don't think Disney is transing anyone's kids. Um, I think rather what's happening here is that better representation is good, not only for improving attitudes and helping people to to carve a space for themselves in the world, to see themselves represented and for the broader community to see that trans people aren't anything to be afraid of. And actually, we're just people just like everyone else. And our stories, while unique, uh, are things that we can empathize with and understand. And you know, uh, it's even good for the box office, like LGBTQ inclusion and representation is actually good for the box office. Like it's, it improves viewership and people willing to willingness to pay to go and see your film. So let's do it, right? You know, if we can create film and representation in all kinds of media, that's really strong, like kind of like Euphoria, which I I absolutely adore and the ballad of songbird and snakes you know it's I just think if we can create circumstances if we create more of this positive representation then maybe we can carve out a space in the world more easily where everyone everyone can find a place to belong Thanks so very much for joining me. This is Classroom Psychology and you are extremely welcome here. And I look forward to seeing you as always in the next one.